to Navigating Change, everybody, the podcast from Tybal Inc. I'm Pete Wright. That is Howard Tybal. How are you, sir? I love your enthusiasm. Are you always this up? Only in the morning. Only you in the morning. Catch me after two o'clock. It's no, it's no. It's guess. just all downhill. It's today. all downhill from about two o'clock. I am excited about this topic. I am too. We are, uh, you know, we've we've been sort of uh, dancing around this topic a little bit, uh, and I think we've come up with a with a story arc for the next couple of weeks that we're going to be talking about this this issue related to this the relationship of fi- the financial role at the institution with other roles in terms of solving problems, uh, a- a- arriving at agreement on strategic focus, and and determining determining direction in a way that is um, that. That helps organizations uh, move forward constructively, and so we're starting with this conversation on on how we integrate teams that don't speak finance. And I'll tell you my how I got to thinking about this. We have a tendency, if you are a financial person, to speak in financial terms, and when you approach a a uh, a division that does not live in finance, that doesn't have the data, coming strictly to to, uh, to the table with financial terms can sometimes seem uh, harsh or intractable. And what, what we're trying to do here is just have this conversation. And my question to you is, how does a financial person who has the data and has important uh, kind of finger on the trigger information that other departments need to know, how do they uh, arrive at strategy when their primary mode of operation is finance. It starts with the institution having a clear set of objectives they're trying to achieve, and then the chief business officer, in a sense, is charged with uh, being, uh, in a sense, a, and I'll use this term that I heard from a chief business officer, a servant leader. And what does that mean? At the heart of what finance divisions do, or student affairs, or any other non-academic area, is to serve the larger institution, to serve the mission. The, the point of the institution is not finance. It's not about to make money. The money is the resources to be able to uh, achieve the mission, and the mission is teaching and research. So first there needs to be a clear idea about where are we trying to go. Now, historically, I think that the reason it shifted is there was a time where higher ed continued to grow and grow and grow, and tuitions could uh, increase and increase and increase. The role of finance or the chief business officer was to basically make sure that the books were balanced and the bills were getting paid and uh, they were getting the money that they needed. It was was really more of a management task. And I think what's happening here is because of the pressures on higher education – around affordability, around access, uh, financial leaders who are on the cabinet, who have relationships with the boards, are now being expected to lead different conversations. So an example of that would be conversations around programmatic reviews. So I'm talking about academic program reviews. What are those programs that, as an institution, we should think about changing? Now, that's a really tough conversation because the, the knowledge of what that program is lives in the academic side of the house. So you, you sit there with the provost and the chief uh, business officer sit down and they talk this through. But it's, it's so much more nuanced than that because there's this whole question about what are we measuring. So it starts with, if you say, you know, how do they do it? First, there needs to be a compelling direction. Working with a number of institutions right now 
who are looking very seriously at some programmatic changes. And the chief business officer's role is to come up with a framework for how to think about this from a financial perspective. And then it's a negotiation because it's not just about the numbers. If you're an academic, uh, you know, an academic leader, you you are going to defend this idea that, yeah, we might not be getting uh, enough students in uh, sociology or psychology or whatever, but core to our liberal arts mission is that we retain those. Uh, those kinds of conversations and negotiations are happening now, and the absence of data, which is what this chief business officer needs to be a part of, it is then it's just people reacting based on feelings. So the chief business officer has to get in there uh, after they have a clear mandate uh, from the president, from the board, and that's part of what they're doing to then make an effort to sit down with the academic side of the house and say, let me tell you where we are and educate them to the financial conditions of the college or university. And now here's an area where we need your partnership. Um, it's often not just the two of them. What most schools are doing now, which is working very well, is you'll have committees or task force that are representative bodies across different disciplines looking at this academic side of the work. So I'm going to stop there and see um, see what you took away from that, actually. Oh, now it's a test. You know, my question really is, is about how you invite that conversation in a constructive way, because I think you're, I think you're right on. And in a best-case scenario, you have institutions that come to the table and, and all departments come and are willing and constructive to, yeah, I'm going to hear this, this hard financial data, these harsh realities of our financial situation. And yes, I'm, I'm going to support our liberal arts uh, mission. But what I'm hearing in institutions that are not best-case institutions, uh, that are are really struggling. They're institutions where the chief academic officer is saying, you know, I'm representing my fa- my faculty body, and they think this is a witch hunt. They think we're out to can programs. They think all you do is come at us with yeah. spreadsheets. How how do you invite that conversation in, in such a way that you are you're you're creating an overall ecosystem? And whose whose real responsibility is that? We may be talking about something that you know is needs to 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 come from uh, higher. Now, I, was, I was recently leading a cabinet, uh, a cabinet meeting, and I can tell you that in the end, and the longer I do this, it is so much a function of the right person in that role. Because if the wrong person is in that role, uh, they are going to do everything in their power to fight the idea of having this be a collaborative conversation. And they're going to err on the side of, we need to protect what we have. Uh, the, the best... Uh, chief academic officers recognize they have a role to play to find the right balance. So it starts with a chief business officer going into the conversation saying, I don't know all the, um, let me put it this way. They need to go into the conversations being interested in learning what is the perspective of the academic side. What is it they don't understand or know? Too often, I think, we go in with an agenda and we have the data and we say, look what the data tells us. You you are, you know, three students going through this whole program. We've got two uh, tenured faculty professors. Why are we doing this? 
that's that's immediately going to produce a level of defensiveness. Instead of here's some data, and let's have a conversation about how we should think about prioritizing programs. That's a very different entry point into a conversation. And I think very often, because of the pressures we have and the expectation that as a chief business officer, I'm expected to produce some change here, or I'm, I'm expected to focus on the numbers, there isn't, a, there isn't a recognition that you have to walk into this truly with some goodwill in the face of there actually might be some defensiveness and some frustration with administration that lives on the academic side. And some of it's grounded in, in that too often the administrative side of the house has sat in an ivory tower and they haven't made an effort to go out and meet academics on their turf. This is about sort of institutional sense memory, right? You know, I have a I have a visceral kind of memory of the last time this process was broken for me as a member of academics or staff or whatever, and that comes up to me whenever you bring up uh, the fact that there may be a budgetary issue, uh, there may be an enrollment issue. I respond in that sort of visceral, visceral, visceral emotional uh, way. It, it gets to a it, go ahead. It, it it's also. Uh, faculty are not there, uh, we're not hired to figure out how to manage the financial operations. And I think what they're, what the, the tough transition we're going through is the finance side of the house is saying, listen, we can't produce this change without you. And faculty are having to be integrated into conversations that they historically haven't really had to know at the level that they need to understand now. Now, in some cases, they're not interested. In other cases, those uh, academic leaders who are saying, listen, we need to be partners in this because if we don't find a way to play a role in this, decisions are going to be made for us that we, we will actually lose con more control if we don't find a way into this conversation. The strategy up to now in in a number of cases is we are going to keep ourselves removed from that because if we engage in the conversation, the risk and the fear, and I understand this, is that we're going to have to give up something. So there's a lot of this fear of giving up something. Uh, and and a, a chief business officer has to go into the conversation and say and be sincere about this. Uh, I am not walking into this knowing what we're going to do. And my preference is, is to partner with you to figure out how we do this. Now, the other thing to keep in mind, because uh, I led a, um, I led a event for the layer down from the chief academic officer. So, for example, deans, deans play a role of working across uh, different academic areas, and then there are the people that work directly for the chief business officer. It may be the case in your institution. A better strategy is to get the people a layer down learning how to collaborate together. And it's all a function is who is the right person in your group? It could be you. It could be somebody that could be an associate vice president in your group who you'd like to charge to be out there and starting to bridge some of those, um, some of those differences between the academic side uh, and, the, and the administrative side. You uh, have led in the past uh, uh, workshops on communicating financial data effectively, yes? Yes. And we're going to be doing a whole bunch more of these 
which just shows me how important this is. We know that there is a certain amount of goodwill, and there's a certain amount of, we talk about exercising these muscles of collaboration, that, that we need to do this often, uh, and particularly in working together across departments. Uh, but I wonder if you could talk about how this concept of communicating financial data effectively uh, across departments applies to this discussion of the relationship between the CBO and their academic counterparts. I think what I'm learning after all these years, because I do a lot of presenting, uh, and sometimes I have to present complex information, uh, finance heads have to present very complex and, and reams of financial data that that I think they haven't had as much practice in saying, what are the key points that we want uh, this audience to make? So there's a very simple uh, set of uh questions you should be asking yourself before you get in front of anybody, whether it's in front of academics or in, in front of other groups, which is, first, who's my audience? Second, what is the intended outcome I have for this audience? And two, what do they need to know and use their language? Now, if you think about it, this makes such common sense, but I can tell you common sense goes out the window because we gravitate to what's easy for us. So for a finance person, it's much easier to talk about the discount rate, encumbrances, reserves, unrestricted debt assets, versus saying a reserve is really savings. The discount rate we're talking about in today's dollars. Now, it becomes so natural. We use this jargon so naturally, and we, we don't realize the jargon is a barrier to, uh, to, to being able to collaborate effectively because you're, you're trying to produce a level of communication. So, so one of the, one of the uh, disciplines chief business officers have to do more of and remind themselves of is looking across the aisle and if you're at a conference and say, who am I talking to at, a, on the, at this conference table? Oh, this is an academic. This is, and it's not, you're not dumbing it down. You're making it, you're speaking in plain English. You know, this is about just making sure, and you can do this. I actually find it most refreshing when I hear chief business officers speaking plain English, English with their own people. So it, it, it comes down to, as I said, who's your audience? What's the core message? And then ultimately, how do you communicate what they need to know uh, so that you can get into a dialogue? That's what I'm always looking for when I'm, for example, facilitating groups who have different points of view. What's so wonderful about that is I, I think it highlights how hard it is to do this when you have organizations that, in fact, and, and you have to think that it is a conscious effort of individuals and teams to use plain English with one another. It, it is hard to get out of speaking in jargon. It is, and it is. And, you know, I, I don't think much about it. I, I think I go out of my way. You know what it is? I have trained myself to know when I'm using jargon. And I will actually uh, preface what I'm about to say is I'm about to use jargon. Even if you uh, preface it, I'm about to use jargon, it is a trigger to let somebody else know you're about to say something that requires, in a sense, a translation. Mm -hmm. Right? So that there, there's power in, in even just acknowledging. So, you know, we talk about reserves, but we're really talking about a savings here. And, and then as you're talking about savings, you're having a, you're having a, a very simple – it's the kind of conversations you'd have at home. You wouldn't talk about reserves when you're home talking about your personal savings. 
Just right. like you wouldn't talk about uh, the discount rate, uh, you would talk about it in today's dollars. But we have found a way, or we have forgotten that there's that there's as much value in speaking plain English, even with our peers, uh, than there is to show. In, in a sense, I mean, and again, I, and, I, and I can say this because I fall into the trap too. It's lazy. It's it's a function of being lazy in our thinking uh, that we don't step back and look at who we're who we're talking to and say, all right, let me talk to talk with them on the level that they're interested in. Just as much as I would like to be able to expect them to do the same for me. That's a great point because you know if I think about the reverse, which is if someone's telling me their story and I'm and let's pretend like I'm the CBO and they're a financial person and they're using all kinds of jargon to represent how they think about managing their area, it be, it it actually produces it in a sense it's a control thing and it's a power thing, you know. It, it shows that we know something that you don't know. I don't think it's intentional. In, some, in rare cases, it is intentional to show power. I think what it ends up doing is uh, creating a barrier. And if we can just be aware of it a little bit more, it can go along. And it, all, it starts, you know, there's, there's what you say, but you really have to go to these conversations uh, with goodwill. You know, by the way, where you see this showing up often and then it disappears, is when, a, when when you come in as a new person. I was talking to a recent CBO who's relatively new, uh, you know, between the, you know six and 12 months at his job, and man, he is going out of his way to show people that he's interested in what they have to think. You know, the real challenge is when you're, two, when you're there two years, three years, and you know all the players, and when someone walks through your door, you're already rolling your eyes. If, before they even <laughs> open their mouth, that is the dynamic that uh, I, I, you know, you say what are, what are some of the core competencies of a CBO? And I know we'll talk about this a different time. One of them is, is having a decent sense of humor, right? You got to have a, you got to have a sense of humor in this work and be able to make fun of yourself, uh, which makes it possible to be able to, um, you know, to have the kind of camaraderie where there isn't defensiveness. I, I've seen too much defensiveness. Uh, between academics and administration. It does not need to be that way. I, I think this conversation highlights, uh, and the fact that you are continually asked to speak and coach on these issues, uh, highlights how, um, how important it is, even though, as you said earlier, uh, it seems like common sense. It seems like common sense. Yeah, uh, but we really we are we exist in complex systems. These are, our organizations are complex human systems, and and sometimes common sense is hard to find. Yeah, and I'd say for the majority of us, you know, someone recently asked me, I mean, someone, I think you did or somebody did. Um, can you? We were talking about being a leader versus being a manager, and the question is, can you take anybody and make them a leader? And there, you know, there's some thought out there. There are some natural leader. You, some people have natural leadership skills. They don't have to be trained. And the question is for the rest of us that don't necessarily have that, that natural, inspiring leadership style, uh, can you learn it? Um, and my, my general answer is yes. There are things that you can learn to demonstrate great leadership skills, just like there are things you can learn to be 
a more effective communicator. Uh, you have to have a desire and a will to step back in some sense from the identity that you think you are. I'm the finance guy. I'm the academic. I'm, I'm, I'm a faculty member. And think of yourself more broadly as, you know, and, and I think of myself this way, and I think some other people do too, a facilitator of change. Man, if you're the finance guy, but you think of yourself as the facilitator of change, you're going to put on a different hat when you come to work uh, than having to prove how much you know about finance. And I know a lot of finance people who do do that. And I'll tell you, it makes a difference. Great way to wrap this up, Howard. I think this is going to be a great conversation. As we said, we're starting this. This uh, this opens up a dialogue. We're going to be talking more uh, at length about the role of the CBO, the role of the chief academic officer, and and how to build synergies uh, reaching across the so-called aisle in the coming weeks. Uh, until then, Howard, thank you so much as ever for your wisdom and expertise. Thank you, Pete. Love talking to you. As always, uh, you can find us at tybalink.com. You can also search for Navigating Change in the iTunes store and subscribe for free. Make sure you don't miss a single episode of the show. On behalf of Howard Tybel, I'm Pete Wright. Uh, oh, make sure to catch us on Twitter, at Howard Tybel for, for Howard and at Pete Wright for me. We'd love to hear your questions and comments and thoughts. Uh, and uh, thank you so much for joining us. We will catch you next week on Navigating Change, the podcast from Tybalink. Link.